Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, everyone. Wherever you are listening from, this is Pastor Vince. We're going 30 minutes early this morning. Patricia found something today that was absolutely amazing. We're going to play it for you. It's about one hour. I hope you enjoy it. This is from seven years ago in June, I think it was July 10th of 2015. And I'm going to get it up there for you right now so that you can give it a listen. Enjoy greatly. God bless. We're going to see you in just a second here. And here we go. Let go of all three ideas about the last day, about 
Yeah. 
how 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, referring to what Paul just said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18 talking about the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the dead will rise, those alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord. But he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, at that very time, not in destruction, but against the world. We're going to talk about this. Thank you. 
Thank you. 
of 
and to be prepared for it. I wish to speak about the fourth of these great realities, the signs of the second coming and what we should do to prepare for it. The Lord has declared, shall be looking forth for the great day of the Lord to come, even for the signs of the coming of the Son of Man, signs that will be shown in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. The Savior taught this in the parable of the fig tree, whose tender new branches give a sign of the coming of summer. So likewise, when the elect shall see the signs of his coming, they shall know that he is near, at the doors. Biblical and modern prophecies give many signs of the second coming. These include the fullness of the gospel restored and preached in all the world for a witness to all nations. False Christs and false prophets deceiving many. Wars and rumors of wars with nation rising against nation. Earthquakes in diverse places. Famine and pestilence. An overflowing scourge, a desolating sickness covering the land. Iniquity abounds. The whole earth in commotion. And men's hearts fail them. In another revelation, the Lord declared, these signs are his voice calling his people to repentance. Hearken, O ye nations of the earth, and hear the words of that God who made you. How oft have I called upon you by the mouth of my servants, and by the ministering of angels, and by mine own voice, and by the voice of thunderings, and by the voice of lightnings, and by the voice of tempests, and by the voice of earthquakes, and great hailstorms, and by the voice of famines, and pestilences of every kind, and would have saved you with an everlasting salvation, but ye would not. These signs of the second coming are all around us, and seem to be increasing in frequency and intensity. For example, the list of major earthquakes in the World Almanac and Book of Facts shows twice as many earthquakes in the decades of the 1980s and 1990s as in the two preceding decades. It also shows further sharp increases in the first several years of this century. The list of notable floods and tidal waves and the list of hurricanes, typhoons, and blizzards worldwide show similar increases in recent years. Increases by comparison with 50 years ago can be dismissed as changes in reporting criteria, but the accelerating pattern of natural disasters in the last few decades is ominous. Another sign of the times is the gathering of the faithful. In the early years of this last dispensation, a gathering to Zion involved various locations in the United States to Kirtland, to Missouri, to Nauvoo, and to the tops of the mountains. Always these were gatherings to prospective temples. With the creation of stakes and the construction of temples in most nations with sizable populations of the faithful, the current commandment is not to gather to one place, but to gather in stakes in 
blessings of eternity in a house of the Lord. There, in their own homelands, they can obey the Lord's command to enlarge the borders of his people and strengthen her stakes. In this way, the stakes of Zion are for a defense and for a refuge from the storm and from wrath when it shall be poured out without measure upon the whole earth. While we are powerless to alter the fact of the second coming and unable to know its exact time, we can accelerate our own preparation and try to influence the preparation of those around us. A parable that contains an challenging teaching on this subject is the parable of the ten virgins. On this parable, the Lord said, And at that day, when I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled, which I spake concerning the ten virgins. Given in the 25th chapter of Matthew, this parable contrasts the circumstances of the five foolish and the five wise virgins. All ten were invited to the wedding feast, but only half of them were prepared with oil in their lamps when the bridegroom came. Five who were prepared went into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Five who had delayed their preparations came late. The door had been closed, and the Lord denied them entrance, saying, I know you not. Watch, therefore, the Savior concluded, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. The arithmetic of this parable is chilling. The ten virgins obviously represent members of Christ's church, for all were invited to the wedding feast, and all knew what was required to be admitted when the bridegroom came, but only half were ready. Modern Revelation contains this teaching spoken by the Lord to the early leaders of the church. And after your testimony cometh wrath and indignation upon the people. For after your testimony cometh the testimony of earthquakes, and the testimony of the voice of thunderings, and the voice of lightnings, and the voice of tempests, and the voice of the waves of the sea heaving themselves beyond their bounds. And all things shall be in commotion, and surely men's hearts shall fail them, for fear shall come upon all people. And angels shall fly through the midst of heaven, crying with a loud voice, sounding the trump of God, saying, Prepare ye, prepare ye, O inhabitants of the earth, for the judgment of our God is come. Behold and lo, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Brothers and sisters, as the Book of Mormon teaches, this life is the time for man to prepare to meet God. The day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. Are we preparing? In his preface to our compilation of modern revelation, the Lord declares, Prepare ye, prepare ye for that which is to come, for the Lord is nigh. The Lord also warned, Yea, let the cry go forth among all people, Awake and arise and go forth to meet the bridegroom. Behold and lo, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Prepare yourselves for the great day of the Lord. 
your caution that we cannot know the day or the hour of his coming. The 24th chapter of Matthew, Jesus taught, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up, but would have been ready. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. What if the day of his coming was tomorrow? If we knew that we would meet the Lord tomorrow, through our premature death or through his unexpected coming, what would we do today? What confessions would we make? What practices would we discontinue? What accounts would we settle? What forgivenesses would we extend? What testimonies would we bear? If we would do those things then, why not now? Why not seek peace while peace can be obtained? If our lamps of preparation are drawn down, let us start immediately to replenish them. We need to make both temporal and spiritual preparation for the events prophesied at the time of the second coming. And the preparation most likely to be neglected is the one less visible and more difficult, the spiritual. A 72-hour kit of temporal supplies may prove valuable for earthly challenges. But as the foolish virgins learned to their sorrow, a 24-hour kit of spiritual preparation is of greater and more enduring value. We are living in the prophesied time when peace shall be taken from the earth and when all things shall be in commotion and men's hearts shall fail them. There are many temporal causes of commotion, including wars and natural disasters, but an even greater cause of current commotion is spiritual. Viewing our surroundings through the lens of faith and with an eternal perspective, we see all around us a fulfillment of the prophecy that the devil shall have power over his own dominion. Our hymn describes the following countless numbers marshaled in the ranks of sin. So it is. Evil that used to be localized and covered like a boil is now legalized and paraded like a banner. The most fundamental roots and bulwarks of civilization are questioned or attacked. Nations disavow their religious heritage. Marriage and family responsibilities are discarded as impediments to personal indulgence. The movies and magazines and television that shape our attitudes are filled with stories or images that portray the children of God as predatory beasts or at best as trivial creations, pursuing little more than personal pleasure. And too many of us accept this as entertainment. The men and women who made epic sacrifices to combat evil regimes in the past were shaped by values that are disappearing from our public teaching. The good, true, and the beautiful are being replaced by the no good, the whatever, and the valueless fodder of personal whim. Not surprisingly, many of our youth and adults are caught up in pornography, pagan piercing of body parts, self-serving pleasure pursuits, 
increasing number of opinion leaders and followers deny the existence of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and revere only the gods of seculars. Many in positions of power and influence deny the right and wrong defined by divine decree. Even among those who profess to believe in right and wrong, there are them that call evil good and good evil. Many also deny individual responsibility and practice dependence on others, seeking, like the foolish virgins, to live on borrowed substance and borrowed light. All of this is grievous in the sight of our Heavenly Father, who loves all of his children and forbids every practice that keeps any from returning to his presence. What is the state of our personal preparation for eternal life? The people of God have always been people of covenant. What is the measure of our compliance with covenants, including the sacred promises we made in the waters of baptism, in receiving the holy priesthood and in the temples of God? Are we promisers who do not fulfill and believers who do not perform? Are we following the Lord's command, stand ye in holy places and be not moved until the day of the Lord come, for behold, it cometh quickly. What are those holy places? Surely they include the temple and its covenants faithfully kept. Surely they include a home where children are treasured and parents are respected. Surely the holy places include our posts of duty assigned by priesthood authority, including missions and callings faithfully fulfilled in branches, wards, and stakes. As the Savior taught in his prophecy of the second coming, Blessed is the faithful and wise servant who is attending to his duty when the Lord comes. As the prophet Nephi taught of that day, the righteous need not fear. And modern revelation promises that the Lord shall have power over his saints. We are surrounded by challenges on all sides. But with faith in God, we trust the blessings he has promised those who keep his commandments. We have faith in the future. We are preparing for that future. To borrow a metaphor from the familiar world of athletic competitions, we do not know when this game will end, and we do not know the final score. But we do know that when the game finally ends, our team wins. We will continue to go forward until the purposes of God shall be accomplished, and the great Jehovah shall say, Work is done. Wherefore, the Savior tells us, be faithful, praying always, having your lamps trimmed and burning, and oil with you, that you may be ready at the coming of the bridegroom. For behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, that I come quickly. I testify of Jesus Christ. I testify that he shall come as he has promised. And I pray that we will be prepared to meet you. In the name of Jesus Christ. This BYU Education Week address with Robert Matthews was given on August 21st, 2007. Welcome to Campus Education Week. I am Robert J. Matthews, and the 
topic today is the spirit world and the resurrection of the dead. I pray for the inspiration of the Holy Ghost so that I will say the right things and be doctrinally correct. Since I'm not a spokesman for the church, I'll quote those who are or who were in their day. And though I cite the scriptures and the brethren correctly, the organization of this talk and the arrangements and the context are mine. So I alone am responsible for what I'm about to say. I firmly believe that what I am going to say is gospel truth. It's based upon Latter-day Revelation and also the Bible. First, we need to have a little orientation. The emphasis will be upon the post-mortal spirit world and the resurrection from the dead. But it will be necessary to first review what the Lord has revealed about our pre-earth life and also why we are now living in these bodies on this earth. We'll understand the subject better if we have a strong doctrinal and historical framework. First, we need to know that all things are governed by law. Mine house is a house of order, says the Lord God, not a house of confusion. The Lord has given priesthood laws that govern everything. The stars, the planets, human spirits, both the good ones and the bad ones, those with and without bodies, not only humans, but all forms of life are governed by law. All things have privileges, and all things are preserved by the law. These laws were fixed in an unalterable decree by the Lord before this earth was ever created. The laws of God are usually user-friendly, and they were given in kindness to enable his children to advance in glory. The prophet Joseph Smith said it this way, God himself, finding he was in the midst of spirits and glory, because he was more intelligent, saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest could have the privilege to advance like himself. He has power to institute laws to instruct the weaker intelligences that they may be exalted with himself. Now there are some progressive steps in this long journey. From our birth of the spirit until we become resurrected beings is a long progressive journey in which each one of us is already involved. There are at least four major phases to this journey. First, unembodied, that's a pre-earth spirit having never received a body of flesh and bones. We call it the first estate. The second is embodied. That's the spirit temporarily connected with the physical body. That's our present earth life, and it's called the second estate. Then there's disembodied. That's a, a spirit that is temporarily separated from the physical body through death. The spirit is alive in the post-mortal spirit world, waiting for the resurrection. And then the fourth one, re-embodied. That's the permanent re 
resurrection. Although there is intellectual and spiritual growth as we move along these steps, there is a constancy of both purpose and individuality. In other words, we're the same person as we go along. We just improve, hopefully. A spirit is immortal and is not dependent upon the physical body for life, but it can benefit from the experience of living in a body. The prophet Joseph Smith explained, The spirit existed before the body. It can exist in the body. It will exist separately from the body, but the body is moldering in the grave and will in the resurrection be again united with it. Now, we need to talk a little bit about our life in the pre-mortal world, the unembodied state. We cannot know who and what we are until we know something about who and what God is, for we were begotten by him. The scriptures and the prophets declare that God is a perfect, dynamic, creative, intelligent, benevolent, fatherly man with shape, size, form as a man. He is a perfect spirit, permanently connected with a perfect physical body of flesh and bones. Every human being is a first generation spirit, daughter, or son of this supremely gracious, powerful, holy, and knowledgeable God. Now we need to talk a little bit about gender. Gender is an everlasting principle. The official proclamation to the world of the family makes this very definitive statement. All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved spirit, son or daughter, of heavenly parents. And as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. Gender is an essential characteristic of individual, premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. You know that that proclamation was written by the first presidency as 12, so that has great authenticity. The term heavenly parents that's used in that proclamation indicates we have a heavenly mother as well as a heavenly father. Moreover, the proclamation declares, in effect, that all of you who are women always were and always will be women, and all men always were and always will be men. This is an identification that has existed for each one of us at least ever since we were born of spirits. And it will continue as an essential identification individually from now on throughout all eternity. It has a major purpose, whether you're a man or a woman. It is my testimony that once we perceive the gender concept, that all the other principles of salvation fall perfectly into place. That's a major idea that cannot be overemphasized. Now let's talk about the nature of spirits. Spirits are made of refined spirit elements. And as the literal offspring of heavenly parents, each human spirit has form, size, and shape in the image of God. But all the parts. 
Christ in the temporal body is in the likeness of the spiritual body. This is also true of all forms of life, not just humans. In other words, the body of a horse has all the features of the spirit of a horse. Each one of us had a pre-mortal life as an intelligent, active, social, individual spirit with our own personality before our birth into this mortal world. We had agency and willpower. We had a wide range of emotions, character traits, and accomplishments, including decision-making ability and accountability. That life was neither bland, listless, nor languid, for it appears to me that good and bad, virtues and vices, all that are known to us in mortality except murder. Since spirits do not die, so there was no murder in previous time. But all these other things about life were present in that long prior spirit life, which is called our first state. Among individual spirits, there was then and there is now a great variety of intelligence, activity, faith, and ambition. Now, God's wisdom calls for a plan. We would certainly expect that an experienced, orderly, knowledgeable, and caring Heavenly Father would understand the necessity for serious training to be given to His spirit children, that He would provide a plan, some system, for them to advance and become like Himself. This system is the plan of redemption. It's called the plan of happiness. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This plan involved would enable the spirits to become like God as a long-term project. It has huge proportions. It has high adventure and great expectations. And it is what the scriptures call the work of the glory of God. Now we talk about the Grand Council. Grand Council is a term often used by the Prophet Joseph Smith to describe the setting or official top-level priesthood functions in the pre-earth life. The plan of God was introduced and taught in many meetings over an extended period of time, collectively called the Grand Council. Most spirits happily accepted the plan and shouted for joy at the opportunity to become like God. They understood that it was far beyond their very best efforts, and that they could succeed only by the absolute redemption that would be provided by Jesus Christ, their Redeemer. The entire plan, from beginning to end, including the creation of the earth, the fall of Adam and of Eve, the mortal probation, the importance of the physical body, death, resurrection, the various apostasies, the great restoration, the atonement of Christ, the millennium, the judgment, the celestialization of the earth, everything was explained in the Grand Council. We knew that we would need the gospel and the blessings of Christ's atonement in every one of those four categories that we've talked about in that 
otherwise than yes, yes, and yes to these questions. Now the resurrection of the dead, the re-embodied state. We now come to the last segment of man's journey, the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection is mankind's final condition, permanent and all-inclusive. No man, woman, or child will be left behind. The world understands neither the necessity nor the benefits of resurrection. Yet resurrection is so basic to the gospel of Jesus Christ that whenever the gospel is taught on this earth by true prophets, the resurrection of Jesus and of all mankind was always vigorously proclaimed. The gospel would not be the gospel and Christ would not be Christ if there were not a resurrection. The prophet Joseph Smith said that the resurrection of Christ is his better point of hope. And Paul proclaimed that the sting of death and the hollow victory of the grave is swallowed up by the victory of Jesus Christ. President Howard W. Hunter uttered this positive and inspiring testimony. The doctrine of the resurrection is the single most fundamental and crucial doctrine in the Christian religion. It cannot be overemphasized, nor can it be disregarded. Without the resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes a litany of wise sayings and seemingly unexplainable miracles with no ultimate triumph. No, the ultimate triumph is in the ultimate miracle. Jesus triumphed over physical and spiritual death is the good news every Christian tongue should speak. The Book of Mormon identifies resurrection as a mystery. A mystery, in the gospel sense, is anything understood only by revelation. I will now touch upon a few essential features of the resurrection that have been revealed in the scriptures and the teachings of the prophets. Resurrection is necessary because of the fall of Adam. The resurrection of mankind is made possible only because of the atonement and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He alone has the power to overcome the effects of the fall of Adam, which brought death of the body and also death of the spirit. Now, death of the body, I call the cemetery death. Death of the spirit doesn't mean the spirit dies, but it means to be separated from the presence of God. Death actually means separation. The body is separate from the spirit, and the spirit and the body are separated from God in spiritual death. The fallen condition is transmitted from mortal parents to mortal children biologically. That's how you and I became mortal is biologically from our fallen mortal parents and it's transmitted by at conception and birth only jesus who was the only begotten of the father in the flesh was not dominated by both men it is inherent in jesus to have power over both kinds of death resurrection is governed by divine law Although everyone will receive a resurrection, it will not all happen at the same time, nor with the same glory. Like everything else in the kingdom of God, the resurrection is governed by divine law, and there is order, and there is timing. The righteous first, the others later. All 
branches before any of the wicked. So far on this earth, only celestial resurrections have taken place, and there's still a lot more of those yet to come. Resurrection is a priesthood ordinance. The reality of Jesus' resurrection. The scriptures illustrate that Jesus was very emphatic to show the faithful believers on this earth that he truly was resurrected with his flesh and bone body. Not just a body, but the very body that he had occupied while on earth. The body that was crucified. He showed this by what the Bible calls many infallible proofs. Now look at the evidence. There were two angels at the tomb and they said Jesus was resurrected. He looked into the tomb and it was empty. Such body was not there. Jesus said he was resurrected, and he showed the twelve his hands, his feet, and his side, and he asked them to feel it with their hands. He ate with them, he drank with them. To avoid any mistake or illusion, he also said, it is I myself. Perhaps the plainest statement of the resurrection from the Bible is found in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 40. When Jesus showed himself to the twelve in Jerusalem, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. But they were terrified and affrighted, and suppose they had seen a spirit. He said unto them, Why are ye troubled? Why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. He also showed his resurrected body to a group of more than 500 persons all at one time, probably in Galilee. A few months later, in the Western Hemisphere, in the land bountiful, Jesus showed his body to 2,500 people assembled there, and they each one felt his flesh with their own hands, and they worshipped him. This would have taken several hours. Jesus also told that large group that he had been commanded by the Father to show his body to the lost tribes of Israel, apparently, on that very day. All of these showings attest to the fact that Jesus and the Father, who know the value of things better than anybody else knows, that they put a very high priority on the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Resurrection is a comforting doctrine. We have all experienced the sting of death and the loss of loved ones. Death is often personified as the enemy who invades all households and families. The knowledge that death is not the end and that all shall revive and walk and talk again helps to lessen the sorrow and the loneliness that shadows us at such times. The counsel of the Lord is that thou shalt live together in love. Insomuch that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die, and more especially for those that have not hope of a glorious resurrection. And it shall come to pass that those that die in me shall not taste of death, for it shall be sweet unto them. And they that die not in me, woe unto them, for their death is bitter. Our testimony of Christ overrides feelings of disappointment because we know that death is not the final curtain, and resurrection is the dawning of a brighter day. The plan of restoration, and I'd like to emphasize that I feel like this 
words restoration and restored to explain what resurrection is. Alma regarded the resurrection as a restoration of the actual body. He was not talking about replacement or substitution. Restoration is an eternal law. Never have I read in the scriptures of the law of replacement or the law of make do. The gospel of Jesus Christ is better than that. Note the words of Alma, chapter 41, verse 2. I say unto thee, my son, that the plan of restoration is requisite with the justice of God, for it is requisite that all things should be restored to their proper order. Behold, it is requisite and just according to the power and resurrection of Christ that the soul of man should be restored to its body and that every part of the body should be restored to itself. You remember Jesus' words to the twelve when he said, It is I myself. He didn't say, but he could have said, I'm not a clone. I'm not a substitute. I am the original. Jesus' words were perfectly accurate and true. He meant what he said. The Lord taught the prophet Joseph Smith the same doctrine about the identity of each person's resurrected body. Now verily I say unto you, that through the redemption which is made for you is brought to pass the resurrection from the dead. And the spirit and the body are the soul of man. And the resurrection from the dead is the redemption of the soul. Note the word redemption. The resurrection from the dead is the redemption of the soul. Now think what these verses are saying. The spirit plus the body make a soul. And the resurrection from the dead is the redemption of the soul. The resurrection involves both the body and the spirit and is beneficial to both of them. Spirit and body complement one another. Neither is complete without the other. Both are redeemed by the resurrection. Can you not see that such a revealed statement leaves no room for a substitute body? To add substitute elements takes away from the idea of redemption. Redemption means you have once had a loss and then you get it back. Check the dictionary. That's what it says. So if the resurrection is the redemption of the body, you get the same body back you had here. To express the matter ever more clearly, the Lord said in the same revelation, you are of a celestial spirit shall receive the same body which was a natural body, even ye shall receive your bodies, and your glory shall be that glory by which your bodies are quickened. Now I see a connection between these verses and another statement just a few words later. Verily I say unto you that that which is governed by law is also preserved by law and perfected and sanctified by the same. I think the key words here are preserved by law. I hear these verses saying that the law of resurrection and restoration preserves the particles of our body and will restore them to our spirit. I don't know how the Lord does it, but I believe that he can do it, that he will do it. Absolutely. Now, President Brigham Young believed it also. For in a funeral sermon in 1868, honoring a brother Spencer who had died, and with the body lying before him in the casket, President Young, speaking of the reality of the resurrection, said, Some have supposed that it meant 
the resurrection because of our earthly experiences and contacts, I have described a much wider view. We first wanted a glorious resurrection when we were in our first estate and saw the beautiful and perfect bodies of our heavenly parents. It was in that far distant past our spirits learned the value of flesh and bones and yearned for such a body so that we could become like God. We have been working toward that ultimate goal ever since. The glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as our great example has been in our hearts in every phase of our existence, from premortal to mortal, and will be in the postmortal and onward, right up to the moment of our resurrection. Lucifer, that great enemy, remember President Hinckley said, he deceived the whole world. Well, here's one of the examples. Having no physical body of his own, he has been quite successful in convincing the world that there is no God, or that if there is a God, he is only a spirit without a body, and that a physical body is not necessary. Only in the true gospel of Jesus Christ is the proper emphasis given regarding the Father's body, Jesus' body, and your body. Now a personal comment about a resurrection. It is my conviction that all human beings are created in the express image of the bodies of our heavenly parents. Our spirit body and our physical body resemble each other, and each has the corresponding parts, features, organs, and likeness that the other has. These are also the features of the bodies of our heavenly parents. Resurrected bodies have size, weight, shape, and they occupy space. They have every limb, joint, hair, and body parts that are natural to the physical body, and they enjoy never-ending youth without sickness or pain. They eat, drink, digest food, and have bodily warmth. They have spirit fluid in their veins instead of red blood, and they do not require sleep. The testimony of the scriptures and of the living prophets is that Christ's victory over death was total and complete. Everything that has a spirit, everything that has had breath, and everything that has died on this earth shall be resurrected. It is all because of Jesus. He said, I am the resurrection. Now many resurrected beings have visited this earth. The personal visits of the Father, the Son, Moroni, John the Baptist, Peter, James, Moses, Elijah, and many others who visited the prophet Joseph Smith. We're all resurrected beings. And they have made Joseph Smith the greatest witness of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the resurrection of all men all time. This is surely the dawning of a brighter day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This BYU Education Week address with Robert Matthews was given on August 21st, 2007. For additional information on this and other programs, go to www.byubroadcast.com.
appreciate very much my brother deserves this opportunity of discussing with you some of the details pertaining to the next major phase of our eternal existence, the post-mortal spiritual existence, sometimes referred to as the post-earthly spiritual existence. This subject has interested me a great deal over the past several years. While I have been researching all the major topics associated